0: Hey, hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn,
1: and I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing: Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers. Don't forget, leave us a review. Please leave us a review, and, and that means you need to buy the book first. Yeah, absolutely. Now, between the two of us, we have over forty years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas, and I'm the guy who's
0: known for questioning the
1: conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. And on today's episode, we're going to well, we're going to get into your feedback. We're going to have to have a well bevy of announcements, and then we're going to head to the pub to cover the latest in the beer news. And boy, has it been a busy set of weeks. And then we'll be heading off to the lounge where we're going to be talking to Morgan Snyder of Buttonwood's Brewing Company in Cranston, Rhode Island before we get to tips, tricks, questions, answers, and something other than beer just so you can have a wonderful beer week.
0: It's a full day. We need to get started. But first, let's take a listen to these messages from the people who make this show possible.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the AHA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrew-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back. Thank you for taking a moment to listen to those messages from our sponsors. Remember, as always, if you interact with any of our sponsors, tell them that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing so they know they're spending their money somewhat less foolishly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, really, that's what we think. So, uh, we got some announcements to do here. The first one is about Hop and Brew School at Yakima Chief in where else? Yakima, Washington. It's coming up August 30th to September 2nd. Registration closes this Friday on the 16th. So if you've been thinking about going to Hop and Brew School, which we highly recommend, it's time to uh, make your reservation now and get ready to go. And uh, you may remember that uh, we ran a contest to give away a couple registrations to Hop and Brew School. And we are thrilled to let you know that our winner for the giveaway is Cassie Salinas, who uh, we'll see at Hop and Brew School.
1: Yes, and it turns out it's also her wedding anniversary that weekend. Ah, uh, how sweet. <laughs> so congratulations to Cassie. We look forward to seeing you there in Yakima. And hopefully we look forward to seeing you guys as well, because... It's going to be our celebration of our 100th episode.
0: That's right, which which happens just before then, but we'll be celebrating still.
1: We always just need an excuse to celebrate. And that's speaking right. of reasons to celebrate, don't forget that last week we had a brand new episode of The Brew Files. Well, it was a little different because it was hard times in Seltzer Town where we took a look at the, well, the reason why there are no laws when you're drinking hard seltzer. Um, so if you've ever <laughs> wanted to kind of figure out how to ride this wave that's currently happening of oddball, watery, sparkly beverages, I walk you through just exactly how you can go about making them at home, including the cheaters method, which we're going to get to in the Q&A section.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, if I was going to do it, that's what I'd do. So we'll see. Coming up, the episode after this is number 100. Wait, who would have figured this is episode 99? Oh, man, I I can count. Uh, I swear. I'm just blown away that we've been doing this a hundred times. Well, yeah, it's f- almost four years now. Wow. Wow. I think we need a vacation. At any rate, we want to hear from you for Episode 100. We have a little questionnaire available, and we want you to let us know what are your favorite moments in the podcast, what have you learned, and uh, you may win a prize out of the prize closet, which is probably going to be one of our books. So please uh, go to com slash Episode 100. Let us know what you liked about the podcast. Even let us know what you didn't like. And we'll try not to do that again.
1: And that's episode 100 as in episode 100.
0: That's right.
1: And now from our friends at BYO, they're having their second annual Nanocon. That's right. Nanocon. If you've ever wanted to open up your own small brewery, or maybe you already have a small brewery and you want to learn how to make it better, you can join them November 1st through 2nd in downtown Vancouver, Washington, just over the Columbia River from Portland, Oregon. You can use the code NANO-EXPERIMENTAL and save $100 on registration. And if you register before early bird pricing ends, which is September 16th, that's a total of $200 worth of savings. You'll get access to over 30 seminars and access to experts to help you figure out how to launch or refine your small brewery. Go to byobootcamp.com and choose Nanocone. And remember to use the word NANO-EXPERIMENTAL To save an extra
0: $100. That's right. If you just can't get enough of brewing, opening a nano brewery is in your future. And the good people at Pico Brew have let us know that they have a special deal for all you guys. If you have been thinking about getting a Z1, that's the uh, Pico Z, the, uh, the base unit, brews two and a half gallons, you can uh, get that for a special price of eighteen ninety nine. that's $1,899, and they're going to throw in a free Pico still with it. Now, we'll put the link on our website because you have to use this link. There are a couple different versions of the Pico still, and you need to get the one that's compatible with the Z1. But if you've been thinking about getting a Z1, this is a great deal. You get a Pico still, which is worth several hundred bucks. They throw in a nice five-gallon keg, brand new. It's nice and shiny. So if you want to get a Pico Brew Z1 and a Pico still, you can find the link in the show notes uh, on our website, experimentalbrew.com.
1: Yeah, just think. Just think of all those delicious hop oils
0: you can make. Yeah, man. You know what? I've got uh, Pico still sitting here, and that's what I'm planning on doing with it.
1: There you go. And don't forget, you know, maybe you're going to make some distilled water or some fuel alcohol. <laughs> I don't think I am. Now, don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Brewswag.com, code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or
0: two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's called Chat with Champs. Chat with Champs helps kids going through cancer treatments by connecting the kids with champions. Uh, they do things like buy them walkie-talkies so they can always have somebody to talk to so they don't feel alone. Uh, lots of stuff like that. It is a killer, killer program, and we all know that kids with cancer is a terrible, terrible thing. So please, please, please go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and throw us a little money that we can pass along to them.
1: Absolutely, I'd repeat my sentiment about what I said about kid cancer, but this is a family friendly podcast. That's right, and now it's time for your feedback. feedback. Our first piece of feedback comes from Christoph Wallenbach in Austria, who says on Radler's. I just listened to the episode ninety seven q and have something to remark about Radler. The best tip would be to blend it in the glass. It is also the most authentic, although premixed Radler has been popularized in recent years. Keep up the great work. And Christoph is correct. If you go and get a Rattler, yeah, naturally it's going to be mixed right there at the bar. It's like a shandy. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I mean, that's the, probably the way I would do it, too. Yeah. And it's easy. Yeah. So, and our second piece of feedback comes from David Scheele in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh, right around the corner from Denny's childhood home. That's right, man. I have spent many hours in Cedar Rapids. I have enjoyed listening to your podcast on Experimental Brewing, where you answer listeners' questions. I hope you do that more frequently. Well, we do that every 12 episodes, because it turns out it's kind of daunting. (laughs) Yeah. I also enjoyed listening to you on Brad Smith's podcast on Beersmith. Yeah, go listen to Beersmith. Uh, Denny and I were on there talking about uh, Simple Homebrewing and why you should buy it. That's right. (laughs) And what you can learn from it and why it's a great book. Yep. You mentioned something on Brad's podcast that intrigued me. The one thing you got booed on is drinking while brewing. Uh, I applaud you for making that stand. I do not drink beer while I brew. My tradition is I enjoy four ounces of my refreshing brew when I'm done. And so if you guys remember, we usually will say in our talks and sometimes here on the podcast that we're big believers in, well, not drinking while you're brewing, or at least not drinking until you're basically done brewing. And yeah, we, we always get a funny reaction to that. Um, it's a matter of safety. I know of a situation where an individual was Injured with severe cuts when he mishandled a carboy. His wife walked into the garage and saw blood everywhere and screamed. It looked like a murder scene. I know of a situation where someone got burned when mishandling hot wort. It's a matter of safety. Homebrewing is a wonderful hobby until someone gets hurt. I support you 100% on this issue. I also have to say that I'm disappointed in my fellow homebrewers who boo you for this. I hope it's not a majority. I also hope they rethink their actions. In our club here in Cedar Falls, Craze, crazebrewers.org, we have a retired EMT who homebrews. I've asked him to do a talk on safety and homebrewing. He's talked about having a fire extinguisher available, yes, using the right heat-resistant gloves, eye protection, not operating propane gas in an enclosed space. In fact, this might be a good idea for a podcast. I also exhort our guys to, time to time, think about your brewing process. How can you do it better and safer? And David's absolutely right. Homebrewing is a great hobby, but brewing is dealing with masses of hot liquid and open flame and you really kind of want to be in your right mind while you're dealing with a lot of that.
0: Yeah, right. You know, and I've broken three carboys before I quit using them and uh, I was lucky not to be injured, but it was definitely lucky. And as for the booing, yeah, I I suspect it's mostly good-natured. Uh, you know, I hope so, although I know a lot of people who uh, believe that you really have to be drinking beer while you brew. I mean, you know, if you want to do it, that's fine. My reason for uh, not doing it aside from safety is it just makes everything more difficult for me. Um, make your own decision, but at least uh take our point of view into consideration.
1: Yeah, my, my will to do work drops drastically when I'm drinking.
0: Yeah, man, exactly. Who wants to do all that cleanup when you're loaded?
1: Well, all I can say is I know that we're working now, but I need a beer.
0: Yep, man. I guess it is about time for a beer. So uh, let's head over to the pub, uh, break open a couple beers, and talk about the beer life. We'll be right back. Inspired by iconic Belgian beers, perfect for summer, Y-East is releasing the three favorite Belgians, or Dre Favorita Belga this quarter. 3463 Forbidden Fruit, 3538 Leuven Pale Ale and 3822 Belgian Dark Ale are available now through the end of September. These original private culture collection strains are sought after for wit beers, Belgian pale ales, strong ales, blonde ales, Flanders, and more, for good reason. The aromatics of fruit orchards and fields at harvest, quenching tartness, effervescent citrus, florals and spiciness, complexity and balance. Qualities like these are irresistible for pairing with fresh picked fruit such as cherries, peaches, apricots, and raspberries. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at whyeastlab.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of essential brewing books like How to Brew by John Palmer, Designing Great Beers by Ray Daniels, and their newest title, Simple Home Brewing, by expert homebrewers Denny Con and Drew Beecham. Visit BrewersPublications.com to shop these titles and more.
0: everybody we are sitting here in the experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town wherever the heck you happen to be and we're having a couple beers and drew has one with a funny name today
1: (laughs) well it's only a funny name if you don't live in southern california or mexico (laughs) and yeah so i'm drinking a beer from a local brewery called ogopogo Uh, ogopogo is down in san gabriel california not too far away from the stuffed sandwich where we've done a couple of interviews And Ogopogo is the name of a lake monster in Lake Okanagan uh, up in British Columbia. uh, (laughs) Really? Yeah. And so it's uh, Nessie's cousin. And so the guys at Ogopogo decided that they were going to open up a brewery and they were going to name all their beers after uh, mythical monsters and water creatures and whatnot. And so they also decided that they have to have a Mexican lager. And so this Mexican lager, which is absolutely perfect for the summertime temperatures we're experiencing right now, they call La Llorona. And if you don't know what that is, that's an old – and, of course, I know I butchered the pronunciation. I can barely speak English. But it's an old uh, legend about a a spirit of a woman who killed her children. There's a couple different uh, tellings, but who killed her children and now haunts the countryside crying for her children. And in some versions of the folktale, also come to steal your children. So it's used a lot like the Mexican version of the boogeyman. So
0: Really, man, that's uh I don't know. I thought beer was about good times and fun, not uh, Well, but it's a great name. So <laughs> it is and, a great name. And, and, no no, and, and, a,
1: and a nice corny Mexican lager is perfect for right about this time of year.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. And I, I I know you're going for something uh decidedly less exotic.
0: <laughs> yeah, really. Um We've been having cool, rainy weather up here. Uh, not quite like winter, but uh, definitely not like summer. So I decided to break into my stash of North Coast Old Stock Ale. I buy uh, one or two every year and put them away for as long as I can stand it. So uh, I've whipped out a 2011. And let me tell you, this beer just ages beautifully. It is smooth and mellow and... The malt comes through and and fills your mouth with this wonderful caramel flavor. Uh, I just absolutely love this beer, and if it wasn't so strong, I'd be drinking it a lot more often. So how long
1: do you think you can let it go?
0: Uh, The oldest one that I have been able to keep around uh, was... Twelve or thirteen years, and it you know it was still in just perfect shape when I drank it. Still had all its carbonation. Uh, it didn't come across as oxidized in a bad way. You know, if anything, it was oxidized in a good way. Right. So you know, twelve, twelve, thirteen years is my record. Uh, if anybody out there has kept one longer, let us know.
1: Uh, that reminds me of a conversation I was having with Jeff Allworth earlier this week, where he was talking about he wrote an article about off flavors. Now, they're not always off flavors, and it reminds me of the old aphorism that a weed is simply a plant that's growing where you don't want it to grow.
0: Yeah, exactly, man. Uh, My my one big win in competition was taking a blue ribbon at the Oregon State Fair for a a five-year-old barley wine that I'd made. And uh, one of the comments I got was that oxidation had been very kind to this beer. And uh, I thought, wow, that is a really cool comment. It's a perfect comment. So yeah.
1: now going from something as rich and flavorful as North Coast Old Stock Ale, <laughs> it's time for us to go, well, about as far away from that as you can get. <laughs>
0: yeah, really.
1: And so uh, BevNet just released the year-over-year uh, beer sales, which is always very interesting to dig into. And for years and years, it's basically been Bud Light, Miller Light, Coors Light, and Budweiser sort of trading positions, right? You know, who's in Who's in number one? And, of course, it's been Bud Light for a good long while now. But this year is kind of surprising because a a new champion came into play. Champion, in quotes, please. But Bud Light is still by far and away the best-selling beer in America, $5.2 billion in sales. So Coors Light is second place with $2.2 billion in sales. And now here's the surpriser because it jumped. Mick Ultra Light is now the third most grossing beer by money in America. With $2.04 billion in sales year over year. That is a lot of very watery beer, people.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I don't think I've ever
1: had any of those beers. I've had all but, of them. And then number four is Miller Lite, which has traditionally been up in that top three. With just just under it, like $300 million under it. Uh, Modelo Especial is actually now in the top five. With 1.99 billion dollars, and Budweiser got cut out of the top five because it only had 1.8 billion dollars in sales. So Budweiser wow. is now well out of there. And yeah, look at that. I mean, the first non-light beer that you get in the list is the Modelo Special. You know, so that's saying something for you know just how much light beer is out there. And by the way, keep in mind Bud Light, 5.2 billion dollars. There isn't a craft brewery that comes close to touching that with. I think you could probably take a good portion of the craft industry and add it together and still not get there. So, um, it's just very interesting to me. Also, the thing that strikes me is with the McUltra moving up that, that high, is this, again, this plays into what I was talking to in last week's episode about hard seltzer. There is a real strong movement towards the idea of healthy drinking. And so people will look at things like McUltra Light and think, ah, that's a healthy way to drink. So, hmm. I think I'd rather have flavor.
0: (laughs) Yeah, man. I mean, it's like uh, another healthy way to drink would be to uh, drink less but drink real beer. Or if you're that really
1: concerned with carbs, drink a vodka and soda.
0: Yeah, Yeah, really, man. Glass of wine. Yeah.
1: Now, this wasn't the only place where AB made the news because AB is always going to make the news. But uh, they also just bought another brewery here in the U.S. Now, and... It's not the one that everybody was expecting them to buy. So they ended up doing a purchase of a brewing company in Cleveland called Platform Brewing. Now, I'd never had any Platform's beers because I haven't been near Cleveland in in probably about a decade. I have to go check the wards. Um, (laughs) But Platform has apparently been growing hand over fist, you know, like nobody's business. They're up to like three locations, about to open a fourth location in the span of, I think, about three or four years. So rapidly growing, a lot of sour, uh, like kettle sour type beers, some hazies, and apparently also a hard seltzer. Um, and what really surprised me about that wasn't so much that they bought platform, although that was interesting, was the thing I thought they were going to spend their money on. Because remember, they've been shedding a lot of assets recently, like Northern Brewer, to try and pay off some of the debt that they got when they did the whole SAB Miller merge. Um what I thought they were going to do was finish the purchase of CBA, uh, Craft Brewers Alliance, which is, you know, the uh, Pyramid, Widmere, Kona, you know, those guys. Uh, because they, they have a certain number of years before they have to finish that deal, and I think that deal is supposed to be coming up, like, this fall. So the fact that AB went and spent the money on purchasing a brand new craft brewery as opposed to shoring up the, their ownership in the CBA is a little bit of an interesting head-scratcher to me.
0: Yeah, well, you know, they have done a number of things that don't apparently make sense to a lot of us, but, you know, when you have all that much money, you can do whatever you like.
1: This is true. Also, uh, as a, a nota bene to anybody who wants to avoid any of the AVI properties, they had been calling their craft beer collection the high-end. All their, eh, I think they're up to 10 craft breweries now. And they've rebranded away from it being called the high end to now it's the Brewers Collective. And if you go and you look at uh, the purchase information about platform brewing, I guarantee you're going to read a press release that reads like every other press release you've ever seen whenever somebody gets bought. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. All right. And Denny, this one's yours.
0: Yeah, this uh, this comes from uh, an article that I came across on, uh, on Facebook uh, from the Growler magazine written by a guy named Simon Nielsen, who's the head brewer at Central Waters Brewing in Amherst, Wisconsin. He has been in the craft beer industry for six years, and he is lamenting the fact that uh, the beer industry was built on innovation, but so much of it these days appears to be chasing trends uh, as opposed to innovating Uh, and I I have to admit that I have a lot of agreement with him in in this uh, attitude Um, (laughs) you're surprised huh
1: yeah this is my surprise face
0: yeah he says the loss of originality is what's killing the heart of our movement where have all the artists gone where have the brewers with something to say gone and you know and some people have been uh, responding with, well, look at things like, you know, like hazy IPA and all the, you know, the the pastry beers and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, to a certain degree, uh, those were innovative, but now it's not so innovative because everybody has one, um, you know, and, and I guess you could kind of make that same argument, uh, you know, even like for, you know, West Coast IPA or anything else, you know, it started as an innovation then everybody had them. But I think that really what he's getting at is to think for yourself. And, you know, just because every bar in the area has a hazy IPA on, maybe that doesn't mean that you need to also. You know, and then there's the other side of the argument, which is you got to offer people what they want to buy. You are a business after all. But maybe, maybe by being different, you'll stand out enough to get that business. Yeah, I mean, What's your-
1: this is the problem with like the hard seltzer stuff that we're seeing with craft brewers make making as well. You know, it's like, is this a betrayal of the mission statement of craft brewing or is it businesses trying to stay in business?
0: Yeah, right. Well, he says, I can tell you from being embedded deep inside this industry that many brewers are scrambling to pack ingredients and haze into beers, often to appease their customers, not because those are the beers we are reaching for at the end of the day. It's not what many of us are passionate about. Sorry, somebody had to rip that Band-Aid off. Might as well be me. And, you know, again, he's talking like from a, a brewer's perspective and, uh, not necessarily a consumer perspective, but I still have a, a lot of agreement in what he's uh, doing. Uh, he says there's a couple of options. We can stop blaming the market and the consumer. Brewers, we can be bold and create. Remember why it is you took out that loan for brewing school, worked two jobs to make ends meet, and chased your dreams. It was because you had a vision. Owners allow your brewers to take your brands in directions that may break away from IPAs and pastry stouts. So you know it, it, a, a bit up high in the sky, but a, a lot of really good points in this article. We'll put a link to it on the website so you can read it and decide for yourself.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I get where he's coming from, and I get the idea of you know, hey, you know, be more be more creative, or at least be more thoughtful about your creation. Because I mean, that's what I say all the time. Right. Um, but I mean, when it's actual dollars to donuts, I mean, sometimes you have to pay attention to what the market wants. You
0: know. Yeah, yeah, you do. Uh, but again, the last uh, line in the article, I think, uh, has a, a lot of validity to it. He says, after all, what was that word that we used to describe the difference between all of the large beer brands for years? Oh, yeah, sameness. Uh, yeah, you know, but, but that's what people have been
1: complaining about ever since IPA started to become dominant. Yeah, well, not it, hazy, the
0: West Coast. I mean it is and it's the reason why you have McDonald's and Holiday Inn because they're all going to be the same and you know what to expect. But uh, maybe maybe that's not the role model we want to use for the beer industry.
1: Maybe. But I'm still happy that people are trying to find a way to stay in business and, and the other the other thing of course is the same thing with music. Not everybody can be an innovative artist. Sometimes sometimes you're the monkeys. <laughs>
0: Right, Uh, And speaking of what's good for the beer industry, uh, we got some great news from our good buddy Larry Klauser at Pono Brewing up in Portland, Oregon. He and the Oregon Brewers Guild have gotten a new law passed in Oregon to allow alternating proprietorships to host tap rooms as well in their space. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what alternating proprietorships means. I got that. Okay.
1: So alternating proprietorship is sort of instead of we think of contract brewing as I go into somebody else's space and have them brew my beer for me. Right. Uh, but then otherwise they, they act like the owner and then I'm basically the, the retailer or the wholesaler. Uh, alternating proprietorship instead is that there are actually two separate brew licenses on a single brew rig. And ah. so I have my fermenters, you have your fermenters, but we have one brew rig between us. And right. so, you know, some days I'm using it, some days you're using it. So that's the alternating proprietorship concept. It's very common in the wine world. It's starting to become more common in the brewing world because it turns out that brew rig is
0: the really expensive part about brewing. So um Yeah, and you know, and if you think back to like our uh, conversation with Matt at Ailsong, that is exactly what they do. But they've had their own tap room for quite a while, so I'm I'm kinda curious about uh about about exactly what changes this is. But
1: the good part part is that they can now actually have their own tap room out of the same space. Um, they can also now uh, be brought into various events that they've been shut out of. So the Oregon right. Brewers Guild helped uh, uh, drive this. And I think Ailsong, I mean, what they have is essentially they have a brewing license. They are they have a brewing license. They just contract the wort from someplace else. Yeah. And do the, do the fermentation there. So they're there's still a standalone brewing. What, okay. What a lot of places have been doing, you know, a lot of affineer type people, if they're not having their own brewing license, then. Yeah, then they're, they're kind of doing the you know, a wholesaler license. But in this particular case, the alternating proprietorship is something different. It's been very very kind of tied down in paperwork. People will remember, uh, if you listen to the Brewing Network, when Jamil originally started Heretic, he started as an alternating proprietorship. But he got hamstrung by the laws around alternating proprietorship, so he couldn't have his own tap space. So it's it's a, an interesting thing to see because this is, I, I'm not sure, but this is the first time I can recall hearing about this being done in the States.
0: Yeah, um, you know, whatever. It's a really, really great thing for Pono. It's uh, a really great thing for other small breweries here in the state of Oregon. And uh, good on you, uh, Oregon Brewers Guild and the state of Oregon, for making a way to make this happen.
1: And as Larry says, he says, this means we can now finally open our own taproom, distribute out of state, and make a move to open up our own place in the near future, as well as being included in industry events we were not allowed to be a part of in the past. So
0: it's opening opportunities. Go team. That's a good thing, right. And uh, should any of you be up in the Portland area, check out Pono Beers. They're available in a number of places, and it looks like they'll have their own tap room before too long. There we go. Pineapple Coach forever. Yeah, really, man. That's a great beer. Absolutely. All right.
1: Speaking of beer. I think it's time to go talk about some beer.
0: We're going to get out of here. We're going to head over to the brewery, and when we come back, we'll be talking about something really cool. So please stick around. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth-generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit Mechagrade.com. We're here in the brewery now with all the gleaming stainless steel. The smell of stale wort is in the air. And we're going to be talking about something that is old and cool.
1: Yeah, so just this one's real quick before we get into some of Denny's brewing practices recently. Stephen Beaumont's been, the, the beer writer, has been traveling around in, uh, down in Central and South America. And he posted up on Facebook a picture of what he's claiming is the oldest cool ship in the Americas. Uh, dating from the 1500s at the uh, St. Francis Convent in Ecuador. And it's very cool to see this thing. It is an old wooden shallow tray underneath a couple of windows designed for, well, what else? The cooling of wort. And that's particularly rad, and it got, it led off into a whole discussion about, you know, old cooling practices versus, you know, nowadays most people associate the idea of a cool ship with, you know, lambics and wildly inoculated beers and, you know, whether or not that was necessarily the case here. And the wild inoculation thing is really much more of a a strong Belgian thing. So in this particular case, this was really all about trying to, trying to cool off your beer as rapidly as you could. And he said that, uh, it was brought in actually from Flanders in the 1500s. Um, and just, they also have found yeast in it and are trying to isolate it to see whether or not they could resurrect some of the original yeast used in it.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, and while they may not have intended wild inoculation with it, there's virtually no way to avoid it when you have an open thing like that.
1: Absolutely, but still, it's very cool. We'll include a link to it because it's really kind of nice to see, you know, just old technology still around.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, Actually, the brewery was still in operation until 1970 with this cool ship from the 1500s, so very very cool.
1: Yeah. All right, well, then going from old school technology to some new school technology. Vincenzo, what you got?
0: Yeah, when uh, we were at uh, Homebrew Con in Providence, we were talking to the guys from Grandfather and they mentioned that they had a new Wi-Fi enabled controller out for their uh, conical fermenter. So, they sent us each one to play with and I've been doing that and it's it's very cool. Uh, you know, I can I can sit in the house instead of having to walk, walk out to the garage and see what my fermentation temperature is. I can control no, no. it. No, you can be sitting in Canada. Well, and that's what I was going to say. I don't have to be just as close as the living room to the garage. I can be on the other side of the world and uh, monitor my fermentation temperature, control it. Uh, it it works very very well. Uh, easy to use. Uh, operation is pretty much flawless once I finally figured out how to use it. And you guys know that sometimes I have a problem with things like that. But I'm I'm really sold on it. If you have been looking for a conical and uh, want that kind of capability, I highly recommend it. Uh, it works great. I love it. Uh, I've had a, a batch of uh, my veterans blend IPA in there for a while and uh, pretty soon there's going to be a uh, lager going into the other one as an experiment with some Lallemand Diamond Lager yeast. Uh, This stuff, I think, has been around for a little while, but it's just finally starting to uh, get noticed by people. I uh, talked to them about it at Homebrew Con, and pretty much all they would say was, it's the Weyensteffen strain. So to me, that says that it's going to be pretty much the same as uh, Y-Ease east 2124 uh, Saf Lager 3470. Those are all uh, theoretically that same strain of yeast. Although we know that it can start off as the same strain and uh, end up with some some differences in how it works. But uh, I have a I have a bunch of the Bry97 ale yeast that we talked about on the last episode and some of the diamond lager yeast, and I'm going to start playing around with those, and uh, I'll let you guys know what my impressions are. I've used the BRY a couple times before, and I really, really like it. It, it comes across to me as very clean and uh, you know, works really, really well. So I'm anxious to see uh, what the diamond lager yeast does.
1: Yeah, and I'm about to gear up and go uh, brew with well, some people that you're going to hear from before too long. On the show, trademark brewing down in uh, Long Beach. And I'm going to go brew a, a whole big collaboration batch for the California Craft Beer Summit. And it's going to be with the Maltose Falcons as one of our anniversary beers. And uh, it's going to be a bunch of pills, uh, Quake yeast, because why not? Some brew malt, and a whole bunch of uh, South African hops just to have some extra super duper fun.
0: You making a Saison?
1: It's kind of ish. It's a farmhouse inspired ish thing right Uh, but it's not a saison because it's not using saison yeast okay but but we are having we are going to have some fun with making a sort of farmhouse-y hoppy uh gizmo on uh
0: trademarks mash filter which you're going to hear about
1: in the interview that will come out in a couple weeks i think so there we go all
0: right man that sounds great have a good time
1: oh yeah all right i think that's enough brewing nonsense let's go lounge
0: we're going to head over to the lounge and uh, listen to Drew talk beer with a guy from Rhode Island, so please stick around. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower owned global hop supplier. Located in the Pacific Northwest, with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's Cryo Hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process, which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo Hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. in uh, Providence when we were at HBC, Drew decided that maybe like he'd head out to a brewery someplace and see what he could find. So he headed out to Buttonwoods Brewing to find out what it's like to run a really tiny brewery in Rhode Island.
1: Yeah. And, you know, all I can say is sometimes this job comes with perks.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. While I was sitting there uh, meeting at nine in the morning, you were drinking beer. Well, I wasn't drinking beer at nine in the morning, but come on, give me a break. I'm not that okay, bad. Okay, ten.
1: Um, But no, I went out (laughs) to Cranston, Rhode Island, and sat down with Morgan Snyder from Buttonwoods Brewing. And Buttonwoods is actually a neighborhood in another part of Rhode Island, but he decided to open up in Cranston. And he and I sat down because, well, his two big things for the brewery are IPAs and Saison's. And, well, that sounds like a win to me. So we sat down and talked for a little while, not only about that, but also about how you run a brewery that's that tiny – and how you deal with the fact that he's in an old New England mill building, and also we got to play around with his crazy pups that were running around in the brewery as well. So why don't you sit back and enjoy? All right, so, Morgan, what are you pouring me? Uh,
2: I am pouring, this is uh, Bees and Honey. Um, so It's pretty. Yeah, so it is a saison uh, brewed with our what I'm calling our harness yeast. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically what happened is we started brewing a Brett saison that's was originally called Harness Negativity um, and then it took off so well the series that the, the beer itself took off so well that I just kept harvesting that yeast over and over and over and over again so this has been over a year of continuous use without re, uh, buying a new fresh pitch uh, and then we pitch it with uh, in secondary we throw honey that was from the Buttonwoods area in Warwick which is where we get our name I
1: am going to say this reminds me so much of it yeah. It's not even funny That's awesome uh, Listeners, uh, for it is is uh, Brasserie DuPont's uh, honey-infused saison Yeah The thing I noticed is that it's obviously a different honey character Go Right, ahead, and
2: who would have guessed it? A different region with a different
1: honey a, a whole ocean in between the regions And I noticed that there's not the same sort of... Uh, one thing I always get before it is a, a waxiness Yes And I don't get that here So, and I
2: I feel like a lot of that actually has to do with the fact that there there is Brett in this in this beer. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why very mildly, yeah, very. It's it's just a touch, and actually, if you age it, it it should actually start coming through uh, with time. Um, But that's actually why you'll notice that we actually do mostly cans. um, But we, you know, we I only have I only have two bottles on the table for obvious reasons. (laughs) Um, Those are definitely not going through our can line
1: well you don't want to be uh, guilty of another exploding can fiasco
2: I feel like that you know I, I'm not throwing don't want to throw anyone under the bus but I feel like the exploding can fiascos these days more stem to the fact that people are throwing fruit in already crashed beers and hoping for the best
1: yeah, yeah i I have a people who've listened to the podcast know I have an, um a reaction to the idea of throwing unfermented foodstuffs into beer yeah it's a bad idea i mean we
2: definitely throw fruit into our beers but we throw it in the secondary to, in hopes that like as it ferments it's going to leave a little bit more of the character uh behind yeah but we're never going to sell anything that's not fully fermented yeah i am not good with this microphone yet
1: <laughs> no worries it's a it's a sure 58 it's pretty much bulletproof you can drop it on the ground and it'll still work even better even better um
2: uh. Yeah, so we also have another sour here.
1: Well, we'll get we'll get to those in a, yep. in a moment. Oh
2: yeah, right? I mean I'm not gonna just like cuvee them on the spot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, okay, so Morgan, we've been talking about this beer, but my listeners don't know who you are.
2: They have yeah, I was gonna say they probably have no idea who I am. <laughs> it's like who is this guy? Um, so my name's Morgan Snyder. Uh, I'm the owner and head brewer uh, at Buttonwoods Brewery, located in Cranston, Rhode Island. Um, we're a pretty s- tiny, relatively speaking, brewery, but we're also in the tiniest state in the U.S., so we're relatively speaking a medium-sized brewery for the state as well.
1: Well, uh, and we were talking earlier, how many how many barrels is your system?
2: So our system is an undersized five that we actually utilize as a three and a half barrel, um, but we do a lot of double and triple batching. So we do we have two sevens, two three and a halves, uh, and a ten.
1: Mm-hmm. So. So yeah, I mean you are kind of on the smaller side, but at the same time, I mean you're in a really cool old building with all these old wood rafters. It's a former mill building.
2: It is a former mill building, uh, built in 1913. um, And so it's funny, my uh, landlord is is a few doors down, and in his office he has an original picture of the building. And you look outside, if if you were here, you'd be able to look out the windows and see we're we're overlooking 95. Right. But in 1913, there was no 95. So you've got this huge where where, where 95 is currently is actually a totally flat plot of land with just cars parked in it.
1: Interesting. Well, and I have to laugh because I'm I'm, I have a lot of New England heritage in my family. So like even just walking up to this building, I'm like, okay, at some point in this building's life, this was a mill. Yes. And this is not a typical in New England you would find these sorts of buildings all over the place. So how did you stumble onto this space?
2: We, um, so we were originally, um, for those, a little quick history on on Buttonwoods. Buttonwoods is a uh, um, Christian retreat camp in the Warwick area of Rhode Island. Uh, By Rhode Island standards, it's a whole other world away, uh, but realistically, it's less than 10, uh, it's about 20 minutes from here, I should say.
1: Well, Um, I talked to Gray Brewing Company a a few weeks back, and they're like, oh, we're we're all as far away as you can get in in Rhode Island. I'm thinking it's a long way away. I'll look it up. It's like 45 minutes.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, depending where you're at, West, Westerly is like the farthest point in Rhode Island. But again, like you said, it's it's 45 minutes. You can cross the whole state in less time than that. Um, but yeah, so by Rhode Island standards, 15 minutes is really far. You have to pack a lunch, stay overnight, all that fun stuff. But so Buttonwoods is a neighborhood uh, Christian neighborhood uh, located in Warwick, Rhode Island. Uh, when we originally started looking for space, uh, we tried to stay in the Warwick area. So but you'd, you'd tie into the Buttonwoods, then? Yep. Um, but uh, the Buttonwoods area itself is all residential, so we went a little bit further looking at industrial space. And uh, we couldn't find any industrial space in Warwick that worked for us. So ultimately, we just said, let's just look at 95, something off 95, and that'll be convenient. Um, and we just kind of we saw an ad on, on I think it was loopnet.com, or .net. Mm-hmm. And um is very handy for finding it is great. I highly recommend it and um, yeah it, it turned a, it got a sis spot I was a little worried um, because half the floor is actually wood and the other half is concrete so mm-hmm. we actually had to rip up some of the wood for our brew pad um, you can see over my my mm-hmm. shoulder
1: Well and you've got a traditional sort of sink and everything else for the for the brew pad
2: Yep. yep
1: so well okay so this is in mean, the building how you got here How did you get here?
2: That is like, are you, you you want to go all the way back to the homebrew days, or we well, could, we no, could kind of?
1: Well, no, let's go further back than that. What's your first memory that said to you, "Holy crap, beer is good"? Like good beer, right?
2: Uh I mean, good beer—that's a whole other story. My first oh, "Holy crap, beer is good" was uh, was a lot younger age than I should admit out loud. It was. Hey,
1: mine was three.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say it was about six. When I fully remember that, I was like, I really like this. This is enjoyable. Um, so we, uh, my first craft beer experience was I went down to visit my buddy in North Carolina. So I'm uh, born and bred uh, Virginia. Um, so I actually
1: okay, have. So you're not carrying the accent around. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I grew up outside DC, so we have an extremely neutral accent. Um, plus, my mom's from Pennsylvania. and My dad's a military brat, so there was no way I was picking up an accent. <laughs> um, but so I uh, I visited a buddy who lives in Greensboro, North Carolina, and he was like, you got to check out this Flying Dog beer. They have a, a brew called Raging Bitch. It's so funny and it's so good. Um, so I tried it and I was like, eh, this is kind of weird. It's like hoppy and bitter. Um, and then so it was kind of but it set me on this path of like, all right, so there's other beers outside of PBR, mm-hmm. which is in Richmond, w- Richmond, where I went to college. It's the People's Beer of Richmond. Hey, I,
1: I still drink beer. Oh, like I love it. One.
2: But it's, it's, it was like the only beer you drank in the city of Richmond for some reason. Um, and so I kind of went down this path. I realized there was actually a local brewery um, on the other side of the river. Checked them out. It's uh, Legends, mm-hmm. uh, Legends Brew Pub. And then uh, right around the end of college, uh, Hardywood Parks Brewing Company opened up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I actually, that's where I, I kind of got my first foot in the door in the beer industry. Um, I started volunteering on, um, on their, uh, beer, their bottling line. And, uh, you know, I actually, um, I, 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 they were so, so young at the time that I was able to sit down and talk to owners, ask them how they got started. Um, and then it kind of developed from there. I, they said they started looking at, they worked in distribution originally, right. Um, so I look, started looking at distribution jobs because I'm a fresh 22-year-old, right. just fresh out of college, no direction in life. Um, but I love drinking beer. So naturally, working beer. I, I, <laughs>
1: I think that makes you part of a very small population. By very small population, I mean almost all the population mm-hmm. of 22-year-old male.
2: Oh, totally, yeah. We love, we love drinking beer. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, so I, I started uh, applying to distribution jobs. And uh, funny story is I ultimately the first interview I got was actually at the distribution company that the owners of Hardywood uh, were working at, based out of New York City. Mm-hmm. So I was telling them this the story I just told you up until now, and I was like, yeah, I know uh, Eric McKay and Patrick Murtaugh, and literally the HR person stopped me on the spot, and said, wait, you know Eric and Patrick? It's like, yeah, they're down in Richmond. I, you know, blah blah blah, yeah. and she's like perfect you're you're coming th- hang on let me go find someone else to, for you to talk to <laughs> so i got a second interview on the spot um and then ultimately landed a internship up there uh that led to a full-time gig uh working as a draft technician in new york city um
1: uh, draft technicians are so underrated
2: oh ah, tell me about it
1: so many places still screw that stuff up. I, I
2: i talk about it i talk about it all the time to i i've, I've talked to some brewery friends They're like yeah you just do this this and it's like None of that makes any sense. Everything you just said is wrong. We are all dumber for hearing this. Please stop and reset and start over again. Thank you.
1: All right, we got, we got an Adam Sandler reference in there, but I yeah. think also for listeners, remind me of this. I think I think we need to get you back to talk draft mechanics and why people need to pay attention to it.
2: Definitely. Oh man, I could go on for hours. We have that. Perfect. Um, yeah, so I did that for about two and a half years, and uh, while I was doing that, I met the owners at the Bronx Brewery um, through because I also did events on the weekends. I was part of the the gig. I did draft work during the week mm-hmm. and then set up and broke down for events on the weekends. Always, um, it's great. I had no free time, mm-hmm. so I got it. Really adjusted me to brewery ownership life because
1: uh, I never have free time. I was gonna say people people, I think people have this romantic notion. If you're working in the brewing industry, it's like all you're doing is hanging out and drinking beer, but what people don't realize is all you're doing
2: right. it, is, it's a
1: job. is hanging out and serving other people beer and having a couple beers on the side.
2: Yes. I mean, there, there are definitely the, that group of people who, while in the beer industry, have maybe a few too many, but honestly about 90% of the people who work in the industry would rather drink seltzer or water than drink another beer because they they've been drinking for 23 days straight. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so that, that led me to. So
1: inch- we get, yeah, so we get the Bronx brewery.
2: Yep. So that led me, that ultimately got me, uh, in touch with those guys over there. Um, and so when they finally, they were a contract brewery originally. And when they finally built out their facility in the Bronx itself, um, I begged and pleaded, I was like, just give me a shot. I want to be a brewer. Give me a chance. And, um, and they hired me. Awesome. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, so it was funny, it was about six months before they actually hired me though, it went to my dad, we came up, I came up for July 4th weekend, uh, after my parents had just moved to the Buttonwoods neighborhood, uh, from Virginia. And it was like, I, it's time we're opening a brewery. I have, I'm, I'm losing faith in my ability to work for someone else. Um, I've, I've, I've been through so many different interviews. I'm losing
1: my need for free time.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. So it was just like, I need, I need to brew. I need to work for someone else. I need to like, you know, figure this out. And, um, my dad was like, let's just open a brewery here. It's like, so now, okay. <laughs>
1: so now I assume in the background of all of this, you know, you're working for the beer industry, you're, wor- you're working at the Bronx brewery. Where you were also homeborn.
2: Oh, yeah. Every, every day I had, I had downtime. I was making a batch of beer.
1: Nice. Yeah. What, what do you think is the What do you think is the thing that stuck with you most from the home brewing day, like in terms of like either recipe or thing that you do still even here on your on your system? Experimentation.
2: So when I was a re- uh, home brewer, I, um, I I I honestly probably I never brewed the same batch twice as mm-hmm. a home brewer, mm-hmm. um, and that allowed me to kind of branch out and try different ingredients and raw materials and try different things you know it was a little bit harder to really scientifically determine what the impact of it was but i was able to try all these different Mm -hmm. raw materials Mm -hmm. yeah um and so that still kind of applies to what i do the the raw materials that i like the most are have what carried over to me as a professional brewer Mm -hmm. Uh, but for the most part it's just i that same philosophy of trying something new constantly uh fully applies uh, we have done somewhere in the range of 100 different beers since we opened a year and a half ago. I
1: was gonna say you opened up March of 2020? uh
2: December 2017.
1: Okay, so December 2017. That's and that's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, yeah. Of course, it's also nothing unusual now in the state of Oh no, it's it's extremely normal. <laughs> um,
2: but it's we do bring beers back. Um, but what that does is allow me to play out uh, play around with different raw materials. You know, sometimes it comes down to the fact that. That one hop that I really uh, loved in that one beer is not available until next year's crop. Right. So it's like, all right, well, what you am know, I going to do here? Galaxy Galaxy. Yeah, oh, I've given up on Galaxy. Uh, we do one Galaxy beer a year. It's all Galaxy hops, and it's on our anniversary. We opened up with one Galaxy beer. Uh, we had a one-year anniversary beer with all Galaxy. And when I finally feel like pulling the trigger on $50 a pound Galaxy, <laughs> Jeez. yeah, that's that's what the spot market is right now. At least that's the last I checked. Oh, that uh, hurts. Yep. So when I finally feel like pulling the trigger on that, we're going to have an all-galaxy beer for an anniversary.
1: <laughs> so a question I always ask people on the podcast is, omitting the word balance, describe your brewing philosophy. Keep it simple. Keep it simple.
2: There that you is, go. I mean, that is uh, – it's it's actually on our uh, – it's probably somewhere on this label right here. Yeah. Um, if it's not, it's definitely on our cans. But I, I make sure that it that is on everything we do.
1: Well, so why don't we uh, why don't we keep it simple and we'll have a sample of your smoke Hellas?
2: Well, that's actually not mine. Or, that's Fox Farm. Oh, I do well. have I do have a smoke tellus, but I don't have any cans of it right okay,
1: now. Okay. Well, here, actually, let's get the Hellas, and we'll, we'll transition that in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, Alex, could you grab a can of
2: the Hellas from the refrigerator?
1: It's a smoked, uh, smoked so that's alcohol. that's from Fox, oh, Fox Farm, okay.
2: yeah. So they're they're really 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 awesome people uh, I down was in just asking What the name was? It's called Hellas.
1: What do you expect? A, do you expect a complicated name for a German beer?
2: All of our all of our uh, so we do regular lagers, and uh, all of them are as simplistically named as possible. Our Pilsner is literally called Pilsner. Hellas called Hellas. Um, we have a light lager coming up called Light Lager. Uh, we're going to do a Czech-style pilsner called Bohemian Pilsner. So, um, right, so
1: now we got Hellas in front of us. Yes,
2: now we have Hellas. We actually even have that on side pull faucet. Um, we've gone full traditional uh, lager-style brewing. Uh, we do lagers year-round. We have one tap mm-hmm. specifically designated to do a roto- rotational uh, lager. Um, so that's part of part of what we do. We do IPAs. We do Saison's, Stouts, Sours, and lagers.
1: Oh, good. I was going to say, when I was reading up on you guys, I was like, okay, they got the IPAs covered. They got the, the Saisons covered. These guys are already kind of in my wheelhouse. And I was looking at the other things we're doing. I'm like, yeah, you're pretty sitting solidly right, like in what I like. Yeah. Uh, I still wish the general public liked Saison more, but eh. hey,
2: you know, it's, I brew the Saisons more or less
1: for myself. Open that up next to the mic. All right, and I think it's time. Let's yeah. while we're talking about keep it simple. Let's yes. have a little bit of your Hellas. Uh,
2: so that is as simple, bare bones as possible. The recipe itself is 100% um, floor malted Bohemian Pilsner malt from Vireman uh, hop-
1: The Barca pills or, or just floor malted malt. Uh, uh,
2: it's probably the Barca. Um, I'd have to look at the actual notes. I I, I know it's listed on the website as as floor malted Pilsner. Mm-hmm. It's probably the Barca. Um, we do uh, actually one thing slightly off from traditional Hellas Brewing. So in traditional Hellas Brewing, they use a thing called sour goot, where they take mm-hmm. a little bit of wort and sour it uh, in preparation for brewing because of boot They can't use uh, yeah, they, lactic to, acid like yeah, we did. acidify
1: the malt yeah, yeah. or mash. So we,
2: we normally do uh, acidulated malt in the mash. Um, this is actually the first one. We didn't do acidulated malt in the mash because we ran out and I forgot to order it. Whoops. Whoops. Uh, Yeah. So uh, we adjusted the kettle pH on that. We adjusted the mash pH on it and we monitored the pH throughout the entire process. Uh, We kept everything uh, around 5 2 in the mash and in the kettle. Um, So we added a little lactic acid in the kettle Mm -hmm. to bring it down and that really kind of smooths it out and gives it this like kind of funky acid creaminess.
1: I was going to say, as I'm sitting here, I mean, okay, one. It definitely lives up to the name Hellas because boy howdy is a pale yeah crisp white head to it and then what's interesting to me about this as opposed to like any of the imported Hellas's I've ever had is just how intense the grain nose is yeah i mean it's like
2: it pops yeah i love it and i really think that comes down to just that that uh, ph adjustments in the in the kettle and the mash tun that those really have a big impact um,
1: I, like you can I'm, I'm not kidding like you can smell that man. barley you can smell the husk you can smell yeah. the grassiness you can all that
2: yeah it's this this one was uh, I fortunately had a uh, I picked my uh, my buddy's brain after he went to uh, the Czech Republic he's also a brewer works at Fibros we worked together at the Bronx originally and um, he's just giving me feeding me information without without even asking he's like this is what I learned about Hellas, like, and so I took everything he said, and applied it to that one, this one beer. So I think, I, honestly, the, the lagers, loggers I spend way more time thinking about as far as recipe formulation, um, while still trying to keep that that mm-hmm. mentality of keeping it simple, like not overcomplicating it. You know, what, what it's what have they been doing doing for hundreds of years mm-hmm. in Germany? Do awesome. that.
1: Well, and I think I mean, we joked about this a little bit earlier before the podcast, but I mean, Rice. brewers tend to love having their loggers after a whole day of making, you know, saisons or double IPAs with mm-hmm. you know, fifteen hop varieties in it, and we really <laughs> we really or you know your marshmallow fluff and butter beers. Done um, that? Yep. Well, <laughs> you're <laughs> in New England. I'd have to. I'd have to expect you would. Um, and loggers are a perfect example of an exercise in restraint. Yes. And they do require a lot of thought just from that restraint aspect. Because mm-hmm. you know, it's it's hard. I mean, you've got very few ingredients, and you still want to get something out there that's very distinctive. To me, what I think is really interesting is you've got that very strong grainy note, that is sort of hay grass right up in the front, and it's not subtle, right? You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you drop into the taste of the beer itself and it goes into that sort of hey, we're not a pills, but we're still that pale malt. Little yep. extra maltiness, Sweet, but
2: subtle hint of hop, but just enough to let you know it's there. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I assume the right re- the recipes I overall it's just gotta be dumbly simple. Really oh yeah.
2: I mean I think it's I think i have to look at the recipe itself, but I think it's like fifty nine views. Um, you know, I think we dropped in about a pound and a half, uh, in the whirlpool. So that brings it out to like, I don't know, like a quarter of a pound per barrel. Uh, someone, someone out there in, in the real world is well, going do doing do it half.
1: You're doing three and a half. Yes, per so it's
2: three dollar. and a half. Um, so it's, it's, it's actually calculated on, on end the kettle, which is about just over four, uh, four barrels. So.
1: So it's three and a half with all the losses. Yeah.
2: So after, after everything, yeast and all that, it's generally good about three and a half barrels, full batch. Um, but yeah, it's, like I said, it's, it's just as simple as we can get it.
1: Well, I assume the Saison with honey is very much in that same wine.
2: Nope. Yep. Uh, actually, I think the recipes, uh, for this and that are probably the same.
1: Just honey in one, no honey in the other and, And, and
2: different yeast. Yeah.
1: It's amazing Um, how that works.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we we don't want the hop characteristic to to overpower anything in the Saison. And we don't want the hop characteristic to overpower anything in the Hellas. So the recipes are realistically pretty simple. We might have done one American hop in the Saison just for added little zippy Mm -hmm. character. But, yeah, the honey really drives everything home.
1: So I'm working at this three and a half barrel length. I mean, I know a lot of people out there are like, "Oh, you can't make that work, right?" Or at least traditionally, that's what a lot of people said.
2: You can if you work a lot.
1: <laughs> well, I, I was gonna say again, we're back to the idea like being a brewer doesn't mean that you're having a lot of free time. You're yeah. You're working a lot. Yeah. So now, is how much how much your beer escapes the taproom?
2: Um. About 5 to 10 percent, depending on the season.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're doing, you're mostly dependent upon taproom sales. Yeah. That's that's your primary driver. Yep. Which, uh, again, we've talked on the podcast before about how important that is to so many brewers. And part of the reason I think that you see this explosion in brews that we've had, if everybody had to depend upon sending beers out in the market, we wouldn't even have half the brews we have.
2: Oh, 100%. It would just, it would just <laughs> flop. There's, it'd be oversaturated. Everyone sit in. Every beer would sit on the shelf, no mm-hmm. one would know what to drink. Like
1: beers are sitting on the shelf right now.
2: Right. Because you, you walk into the liquor store and you're just like, what do I buy? Hmm? There's there's a hundred different IPs sitting in front of me. There's a hundred
1: stouts on the other side.
2: There's a hundred different what whatever everything.
1: what what packie are you going to that has a hundred stouts?
2: Right, i just using that as an example. The <laughs> the real answer is there aren't any because New England does not like dark beer. <laughs> <laughs> We we the like seriously we did we have a, a 5.5% milk stout on and uh, I fully ex- I, I brewed it with the intention that this is gonna sit out over the summer and it's gonna be perfectly fine. It's that perfect little campfire mm-hmm. beer. It's got a nice little chocolate note, with a little kind of smokiness. You sit down and drink it with a s'mores in front of a campfire, beautiful. But it's gonna be there the entire summer because nobody drinks stouts when it's but like, over 80 over <laughs> 60 degrees outside here.
1: Yeah, don't give me don't get me started on New England's reaction to temperatures. It's crazy. Um yeah, I grew up in Florida with humidity, so I yeah. I, I was
2: it. in I was in North Carolina two weeks ago and I was just like walking around I was like, what is this thing in the sky and why am I burning slowly right now?
1: Alright, well we've we've kind of danced around a couple things. So other than keep it simple, what do you think makes your beer uniquely yours?
2: You know, honestly, I, I don't think we're really trying to, to break the mold um, as far as brewing style. Mm-hmm. Um, we're really, like like I said about the Hellas, we're trying to keep it as traditional and proper German as possible. Um, we're doing really well-made New England IPAs, but we're taking knowledge from people we've talked to about um, brewing New England IPAs mm-hmm. and applying that to what we do. And I think what ultimately that is is that, that I'm constantly trying to learn and do better and create a better beer based on information and I think that's what makes us different is that every single time I make a beer I'm trying to learn something different mm-hmm. I'm testing a theory I'm trying something out um, we made one beer um, that the System brewer uh, wrote and tasting out of the fermenter it's, it's incredible it, it's blowing my mind and I'm just sitting there I'm like what did we do mm-hmm. that is so incredibly different from what we normally do, um, so I'm taking that that recipe and breaking down each individual uh, adjunct and doing that going forward. Because I need to know like what caused this like one phenomenal flavor. It's all it's in the grain bill. I know that for a fact. But there's just one quality that really just sticks out that's made like this amazing like IPA. So I'm like my brain just. Has been fixated that on that for about two weeks since we brewed it.
1: <laughs> well, and of course now people, this means that you're going to have like five more brews that you're going to have to do in order to like eliminate eliminate all. They're the already
2: planned. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let me ask: as a homebrewer turned pro brewer, what's the biggest thing that surprised you about that transition in terms of what you could do as a homebrewer that you can't do as a pro brewer?
2: It's it's um I mean to a certain extent there is a little bit less like flexibility, mm-hmm. you know. As a home brewer, you can you can go make a keg seventeen times, and and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you're gonna drink it, your friends are gonna drink it, someone else is gonna drink you, it.
1: You have no market pressures. Right.
2: Whereas as a brewery owner, the thing is, I would I would kill to make a keg right now. We actually do have one planned. But I don't know if it's going to sell. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's a certain level where I just, if I'm going to do something like that, I kind of have to stack the deck ahead of hand. So, if I'm going to make something experimental and weird, I have to make sure I also have plenty of beers that are also going to move. move. Sort of compensates for the fact that that one experimental weird beer that I make that may or may not sell, sells. Um, We actually did that uh, just recently with a... 100% 100% smoked or 98% smoked malt helles. Um So we did. Uh, it was 98% beechwood smoked malt with 2% acidulated malt. Uh, very similar recipe to this, but the uh, hops were a little bit higher. Um, and I made it with full intention of not selling it. Like it was just going to sit there and stagnate.
1: I was going to say, smoked beer never moves. It moved. It did.
2: It. We wow. sold. We sold out. We sold out of. Uh, I mean, we did a small run of it. We sold out of 15 cases in five days, which is for a lot of really, really good. For well, us. And,
1: well, and and for a smoked beer, that's for phenomenal. For a smoked
2: beer in general, it's phenomenal.
1: I mean, I, I mean, I've spent time with other people who I really trust their brewing opinions, and and you know, we all have great conversations about all this different stuff. And like, I express that um, I really like you know, rashed beers, and yeah. they're like. You do? I'm like, yeah. And like, you can just see all these people who, even sophisticated palates, were just like going, no to Roush beers because it's personal taste. So.
2: But it sounds so much more intimidating. You have to understand you like barbecue, yeah. you're going to like a Rausch beer. You just, like, it, it's smoked beer just sounds weird and intimidating and frightening, but it's really good.
1: <laughs> all right. So now we're going from the Hellas, which is super simple. Yes. To,
2: to uh, Reb Demoir's, uh which is actually French for uh, Dream of Blackberries. So I'm going to crack it real quick. Um, so this is our barrel aged, we call them rustic industrial ales. Mm-hmm. And the reason we call them rustic industrial ales because, I mean, as you mentioned earlier in the show, we're not on a farmhouse. So why would I call this beer a farmhouse? It takes a lot of uh, cues from uh, farmhouse brewing. Uh, it is aged on a Massive amount of blackberries, but the base beer itself um, spent anywhere between 12 and 16 months in oak uh, uh, wine oak barrels. Um, I don't remember which one this one specifically came out of. I want to say I'm not going to remember it, anyways. Um, So this is this is our rustic industrial. This is our farmhouse. Um, Hmm. Any any bug introduction other than barrel or no? So there's at this point there's so much going on in there that mm-hmm. I have no idea. Uh, it's what started out I got one singular barrel from uh, when I worked at the Bronx Brewery and it had a very amazing brett strain that could create a uh, nice like, complex um, brett beer in, in under three months. Um, and then uh, I started adding more drags to it and growing it up and then pitching it into this barrel. So I had one barrel for the entirety of the build out process that I just kept the dumping f- barrels into and then I harvested that yeast, grew it up and then pitched more stuff into it mm-hmm. and then I I spread it out into eight different barrels. Then I put different dregs in the different You're barrels. You're
1: teaching the barrels.
2: Yeah, so it's they're ju- it's it's all over the place. I actually pulled uh pulled some to grow it back up and as far as I knew, everything that I pitched didn't have pediococcus in it, and I pulled a sample in our most of our most recent from our most recent four barrels.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It was ropey. Yep. Which means pediococcus.
1: <laughs> well, I, was yeah. say, I mean, this has this has all the Brett. This has the lactic acid, but this also has it has that real serious sort of PDOE type type acid character, and also it's reinforced by the blackberries. Yep. Because you're getting the not only the oak tans from the barrels, but you're also getting the tans from the blackberries. Yep. I, this is, I this is a beer that you're kind of sitting that you're pouring yourself a glass and you're thinking about.
2: Yep. And this is uh, this is what we've been building towards uh, since we opened. Um, this is a very big part of what I wanted to do as far as brewery, um, but I know full well that like I couldn't just do that by itself because it's it takes time to make these mm-hmm. things. Um, so and, that's, how, and how long was this one? Uh, 12 to 16 months. Okay. I'm gonna say one barrel was 12 and one was 16 months old. Um, and we we have 18 barrels back there just going and i waiting. Yep. And I'm trying to add as many as I can, as often as I can. Uh, the bit, the next big, next big move is a uh, a 10 barrel fooder. Oh, yep. So fingers crossed, we'll see when that finally happens. But it's, you know, there's. The, the fun part about owning a brewery is that there's always something you need to buy.
1: <laughs> always something you need to buy. Always something you need to repair. Always, yep. you know, we need that other gasket. Oh, the controller just blew. Mm-hmm. Yep. Always. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, is this beer where you want it to be as it is right now? Because, I mean, it's, it's got... Ex-
2: honestly, it's exceeded expectations. You know, it's... It's... It, it, it was very nerve-wracking to do, like a full sour beer and mm-hmm. barrels because I've read all about it and mm-hmm. picked the brains of, of every single person who's ever made sour beer that would talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. And until, until I finally put it into action, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I talked to some people who are like, don't do that, do that. And then I talked to one person who said the exact opposite. I'm just like, I'm confused. I'm going to do all of it and, and just see what happens. <laughs>
1: So the big question is... I mean, this is fantastic. Like I said, and this, this screams with the blackberry. You get the tannins from those. You get the tannins from the, the oak. You get the acid from the blackberries. You obviously get the acid from the other, the other cultures. And in a not completely out-of-whack sort of fashion. Right. It's, right. Not an, it's not an acid bomb. It's not a fruit bomb. It's not an oak bomb. It's it's all those things melded together. Yep. So... Brewer truth time.
2: Go for it. I have no
1: secrets. Do you think you can hit this again?
2: I've tasted every single barrel over there. They're within like they're very close within range of each other. It's pretty wild. I uh, we even the newer barrels, they just pulled a sample of that yesterday and I'm like, this is still very much within range of what this is. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously going forward I'm there's some level of uh, being nervous about that. Great. There's, there's a puppy running around and she just decided it's the most appropriate time to pee at my feet.
1: Well, uh, and, well, you have two dogs running around. We've got Ollie and who's 10 years old and... Ara. Ara. Who's three months old. Three months old, three months old and is a three month old puppy. Yes. Um,
2: <laughs> she does not pee outside yet. Uh, but yeah, so I, <laughs> to bring it back into what we were talking about. As long as she doesn't she, pee on the barrels. Or my feet. Um to bring it back into where we were talking about but like this so we pulled a sample of a it was probably about a three to four month old barrel um the one i was telling you about that mm-hmm. we pulled a sample and it was ropey and it's in that range it's like that very like you get the undertones on this beer are kind of stone fruit peachy lemony there's this nice kind of herbaceous characteristic that i'm not really sure where it's coming from but i love it mm-hmm. um and it's it's all there um, and it's so you just got to get it to stop being sick, right? And it it's already done. I pulled the sample I pulled yesterday was not ropey, but it's and it's, it's it's crazy. It's three month, three to four months old. I'd have to check the date on it. But we pulled a sample about a month in, just because like that that barrel it was a Pinot Noir barrel, and it mm-hmm. smelled like Kool Aid when we stuck our nose in. It. it was like, wow, this is incredible cherry Kool Aid. It was like, well, this is the best barrel we've ever smelled. Uh, Pinot for you. Yep. So we we decided it was important that we try it um and we pull the sample i was like this is just ropey so a month in it's already ropey three months later it's already cleared up so it's there's there's some really magical bacteria in there and i'm not going to question any of it
1: (laughs) uh, in that particular case is brett 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 will chew through all those polysaccharides and, Mm. and clear the beer right up and they'll be very happy to do it for you oh totally all right well hey so before we go what else do you want people to know about buttons and you i
2: mean honestly we touched on some of the most important parts i i busted out we talked busted out the beers that like really kind of i'm the most passionate about mm-hmm. um, well and
1: we didn't touch on
2: any of your ipas and and don't get me wrong i love those things but it we're in new england you 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 can't go to you can't drink
1: a dead cat without having yeah. an ipa you're
2: you're gonna get have an ipa somewhere you know, we we make the very best IPAs we can. We ha- I have so much fun experimenting with different hops. But realistically, like, we're no different than the guy down the street as far as IPAs go. And as much as I'd love to say we're we're making the best IPAs in the country, we're not. We're just on par with – we're on par, maybe a b- little bit above par. I don't know. Some people – whatever your opinion is on IPAs, you can have it. Well, I mean, but what I... we do different is, is the things that we tried today. The Saison, the Sour, the Hellas, you know.
1: Yeah, and these were all fantastic, and they all had their different characteristics that they were showcasing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's always nice to see that, right? You know, like I'm still waiting for Hellas. At some, I think what people have to do is they're they're going to have to rebrand Hellas with a better term than just logger, but they're going to have to rebrand Hellas here in the states in order to get people to embrace it because it's a really good summer style. Well,
2: that's just it. It's like, um, so so we mentioned Fox Farm, they've done a killer job making these amazing sours and lagers down in uh, Connecticut, maybe about 45 minutes to an hour from here and they've really kind of formed the perception of what a lager can be over there so it's made it so much easier for us to just come out and do lagers all the time because they've done all the legwork mm-hmm. we just have to show up and to the party and be like, we brought a Hellas, and they're like we already did that, I'm like, I know thank you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you for turning the ground ahead of me. Yeah, love you. Exactly, and I love those guys over there. They're they're good friends, so um, happy to give them a shout-out. But yeah, I mean they've they've tread the ground ahead of us, and and you even look at Hill Farmstead, they're doing mm-hmm. helleses and pilsners, and it's really turning the perception of what lagers can be. You look at uh Dan is one of the most amazing human beings I've ever had the good fortune to meet, um, and he's you know all he does is make lagers down there. He's crushing it. Mm-hmm.
1: There we go. Are we moving from an IPA world to a lager world? Maybe,
2: maybe not. I think yes and no. I think we are definitely moving into a, a much more into a lager world, uh, much more bigger acceptance to it. Uh, I don't think we'll ever be out of the IPA world in no. my my entire history of working in the beer industry. IPAs all have always been the number one seller. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to argue with it. I'm not going to fight it. I love a good IPA. People love their hops. Let's embrace it. You know, don't fight it. Enjoy it. Um, but it's nice to see that we can we can make other things, and people will buy them and enjoy them.
1: Absolutely. So now, if people want to come and have your beer, if they want to be able to experience what we just had today,
2: how do they, they get it? So uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we are in Cranston, Rhode Island. We are specifically located at 530 Wellington Avenue. It's right off 95. You take exit 16. Um, or for those of you in Rhode Island, we're just past the water tower. Um
1: Go up the little concrete staircase, go inside the building, find the door that yeah. is
2: there are trees everywhere. Just look for the trees. There's a tree outside on our, our door, there's a tree uh sideway sign. Like you, you just look for the tree everywhere. It's it's plastered all over everything. Um because uh, side note, Buttonwoods is actually a type of sick more, so yep.
1: all right, so go there, uh I assume you guys got a Facebook presence, a web presence, all that good stuff. We're
2: right? all we're on all the social medias. You can find us at uh, Buttonwoods Brewery on Facebook. Um, our Instagram is Buttonwoods Craft Brewing. Um, we're not on Twitter. I'm sorry. I just, I don't understand that social media platform. Mm-hmm. Even at, even as a 30 year old, I'm just like,
1: what, what is that? that? Hey, I'm a 45 year old. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah. And of course, you can always come to the brewery and uh, visit Alia and R. Yep, Alia and Ara. Yep, Ali and Ara. And they will definitely
2: be there. They will greet you and hopefully Ara is potty trained by the time you come here.
1: Uh, Ara
2: is currently uh, chasing a stuffed duck. Oh, a, stuffed duck or a, or a mop? One of no, the stuff duck. Yep. yep, stuff duck. She okay. also chases them up because again, three month old puppy.
1: Puppies chase everything. All right, <laughs> but hey, I totally encourage you guys to come on down, give this uh, give this beer a try because I mean, uh, we didn't even dig into any really any of your standard stuff. I mean, no, this is this is just kind of some of the, the fun the, stuff. But this stuff the is summons. here. Yeah, all the time. So if you want to if you want to have Buttonwood's beer, yeah, I got to come to the Buttonwood's Brewing, sit down. Nice little space here. We got some barrels. We got some stools. We got fans. We got everything. And you're in like a really cool old historic building. Come on. It's no England. You got to spend some time in the mill.
2: <laughs> it's required.
1: <laughs> well, hey, thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Man, it takes real dedication to uh, put that much effort into something that is that small.
1: I know, but I'll tell you I mean, the experiences that we had in Providence. Morgan was really killing it. He was one of the best ones that I think I I had the chance to taste the beers of. So small, but mighty.
0: (laughs) I guess that's the key, isn't it, man? Right there.
1: Be small and be mighty. But if you're in Cranston, Rhode Island, or really Providence, Rhode Island, let's face it, Rhode Island's not that big of a state, make sure that you head out to Buttonwoods Brewing. I highly recommend it. And yeah, also say hi to the dogs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely say hi to the dogs. We're going to take a uh, quick break here, and when we come back, it'll be time to wrap up this show, so please stick around. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest Brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at GenesisFermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold.
1: Welcome back, and thank you for sticking around after the lounge and listening to our sponsors. It's now time for, well, the most nerve-wracking part of the show. It's your questions. Danny, you got the first question.
0: (laughs) Yeah, man. Uh, Here we go. Uh, Sit back because this is going to take a while. So the, uh, the question comes from Christopher Bartlett, and he says, Gentlemen, I love beer. I love making beer. I just cannot get into all the emphasis in brewing lately on seeing how many hops we can cram into a pint of beer, and I have trouble drumming up enthusiasm to try the latest quadruple imperial IPA with 17 dry hop additions. I promise, I've really tried. I order at least one IPA in any flight of tasters I do at a new brew pub. I've made IPA that people like to drink – but in the past three years, I've been unable to make myself brew anything with more than two ounces per five-and-a-half-gallon batch. It's kind of a weird metric. Uh, Two ounces doesn't really... Anyway, Anyway, I love malt flavors, from toast to honey, from silky chocolate to every variation of toffee, coffee, or caramel. I love teasing out the flavors expressed by different yeast strains and different fermentation regimes. I love hops, but I just don't love super hop-aggressive beers, even when I can make good ones, according to people who do. So you may ask, why don't I just make the beers I like and be content, which would be a perfectly reasonable question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my answer is that I love making beer for many reasons, because I love to drink good beer, because I love the alchemy and magic that goes along with the science, and because I love sharing what I make and giving pleasure to other people by serving them something they like. So this is my reason for writing. People seem to love these hop-crazy beers. Hell, even you two seem to love these hop-crazy beers. I would like to learn how to approach these beers as something other than being mugged in an alley by a hop monster and having my taste buds taken hostage. Can you gentlemen recommend ways in which I might, through the process of brewing more hop-forward beers, learn to love the amazing abundance of hops we have access to? unlike when we all began brewing, so I can make better gifts of love to the people I care about whose hop-induced Stockholm Syndrome means that my delicious English brown ale or my malt-forward American amber or the caraway rye that actually won Best in Herbal at a state fair many years ago are just not what they're craving. I write all the above a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I do truthfully want to appreciate the making of these styles more than I do, because it will mean I make a better beer for my people. I know that it's more usual to spend time learning the ins and outs of a particular style by drinking a number of different examples. I've done this, and I'm hoping you might be able to suggest ways to come at it the other way around. I'm a good home brewer, so say the folk who drink my beer, but I'm always open to learn how to do something better, and making hop-forward beers is something I want to be better at. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Christopher, uh, I have – I don't want to insult you here, but I'm going to start off by saying screw it. Why worry about it? Uh, I, don't I don't like Hellas. I don't Hell- think that's insulting. It's... Yeah. I mean, I don't like Hellas, so I just don't make Hellas. Uh, if people like Hellas, if my friends want one, they can go get it somewhere else. Uh if I wanted to make Hellas and just give it away like you seem to want to do with the IPA, I would. It sounds like your Hop Forward beers are very good quality. Your friends like them. I wouldn't I, I wouldn't worry about it, man. If you want to make gifts for people and it's going to be IPA, do it and then brew something malty for yourself. Otherwise, brew what you like and
1: screw them. Yeah, well, and... Not to put too much of a point it, we talked about this earlier in the episode, brewers make a lot of beer styles that they just don't like. You know, that Growler Mag article that Denny was talking about earlier, you know, talks about the fact that a lot of brewers are pilsner heads. Um, so you can do it. Now, if you are honestly sincere about, you know, wanting to learn to love the hop, then I would say start with pale ales. Don't uh, Don't try and start with, you know, an IPA. You know, play around with the pale ales until you start to learn, you know, whether or not there are actually hop characters that you like. It may be that you object strongly to things like, you know, the cattiness of Cascade and Centennial and, and Cluster and all the classic American hops. Or you don't like the overly tropical fruit flavors of, you know, some of the newer hops where, like, I have a problem with a lot of passion fruit type hops because I always feel like they end up tasting rotten. Um, but if you really want to learn how to do that, I would start with the pale ales. Start simple. Don't try and overload yourself because... Yeah, the quadruple IPAs are silly in that sense. I also think they're usually kind of muddy. But at the same time, to echo what Denny said, if if it comes down to the fact that you don't like hops, you don't
0: like hops. It's okay. Yeah, you know, and it, it sounds like you already know how to brew a good IPA or hop forward beer. So, you know, I, I wouldn't worry about it, you know, either do it or don't do it and move on, man.
1: There you go. All right, and our next question comes from Will Allwart, who says, I've been loving the new book. Thank you. It's great to be reminded to simplify the process up to up the enjoyment level. I did have a couple of questions I wanted your opinions on. The first, when scaling an existing recipe down from five gallons to two and a half gallons, how would you scale the flavor and romahop hop edition in something like a Pills with a 20-minute one-ounce edition and a one-ounce flame-out edition? Would you suggest just cutting the amounts in half, leave them the same, or possibly try to match IBU contributions? The second follow-up question Now, take that same scale down 2.5-gallon recipe and shorten the boil time from 60 minutes to 30 minutes. How would you adjust your flavor and aroma additions? I know for the bittering hops, you suggest just doubling the amount of the 60-minute addition. What to do with the later additions to get the closest results? I'm trying to take some of the advice in the book in order to shorten my brew day. I've already tried a few different options, but wonder what you guys might suggest the best option might be, especially when considering classic styles like pilsners or bitters. Cheers to keeping it simple and keep up the great work. Uh... Okay. If you want to do everything perfectly according to Hoyle, then yeah, you could do the math and match the IBU contributions. But no, again, no, 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 well, no. But hold on. <laughs> Let me finish. Okay. Finish. But with flavor and aroma additions, uh, no, I mean, you're not really caring about the IBUs a lot of times out of those. So for me, I would just simply scale them. Um, I think if you, if you left them the same, I think the problem is you're going to get a lot of hop oil saturated into the wort. Uh, so, yeah, I would just literally scale them. Denny?
0: Yeah, um, that's exactly what I do, too. Uh, I've run into this many, many times. Uh, bittering hops, you need to scale the IBUs, uh, you know, so that it, you maintain the same level. But uh, IBUs really don't make much difference to flavor and aroma hops, uh, especially if they're added really late in the boil. So just go ahead and divide the amount. So, you know, early editions, you go, you scale the IBUs, late editions, you scale the uh, the weight. For instance, Yakima Chief recommends with Cryo Hops uh, for flavor and aroma that you uh, take a look at the IBU because Cryo Hops have, Scary high IBUs, and then use the IBU level uh, of your other flavor and aroma edition, your previous flavor and aroma edition, and translate that to the higher IBU of the Cryo hops. I found that that didn't work for me. Uh, I just go strictly on uh, on amount.
1: Yeah, I so, think. I mean, if you wanted to be the most precise, it would be looking at the oils, but that's generally going to be beyond our scale
0: yeah exactly and it it's gonna be more than we need to worry about, you know, so I would say uh definitely early editions adjust by i b u late editions adjust by weight
1: now, I would also kind of feel that applies to his question about shortening from sixty to thirty minutes, right I mean again, there you have to adjust the bittering edition in order to deal with you know the less time for utilization but the hops are going in for your flavor and aroma, they're going to be exposed to the same heat for the same period of time. So I wouldn't mess with those. Absolutely. Yep. So there you go. We'll hope that helps. Good luck. And let us know uh, what happens. <laughs> yeah. Now, next question comes from beer, Bob and beer, Bob uh, writes in oddly enough, about hard seltzer to say, just listen to the hard seltzer edition of the podcast. The gin and tonic party cocktail intrigued me. If you would, please give me the recipe and instructions. And how do you carbonate in the keg? Love your show. Well, a beer bub, here's my instructions. Go out and get yourself a good tonic syrup. Uh, you can make your own tonic syrup, and there are lots of instructions online for how to do that. But uh, filtering quinine from tonic syrup is sort of a pain, so I'd just prefer to let somebody else do that. Um, but you can get something like the Jack Ruby. Uh, you can get something like the Jack Rudy uh, tonic syrup. There's the Antonic that I talked about a long time ago on on the show, you can get any of those tonic syrups and blend that in with water. I would add a little bit of uh, a little bit of calcium carbonate to the water uh, just to give it a little bit of hardness and then that water into the keg do your do your gin additions you know so that you know how much alcohol you're getting aim for say somewhere around a five five and a half percent cocktail uh, add all that together into the keg, seal it up, chill the keg down, and carbonate it just like you would beer and that's it yep. Sounds like, right to me. And by the way, also, I don't do this a lot because I value my liver.
0: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: I, I'm not getting. I would house a keg of gin, uh, gin and tonics. So uh, spoken from the guy who uh, created GinCon at HomebrewCon. <laughs> All right. And our last question comes from Derek Clark, and it's for Denny. And Denny, I'm, I'm going to read this one for you. Okay. Denny, during your recent podcast, episode 98, You said use a metric buttload of yeast if you're trying to restart a stuck fermentation. How does that convert to a metric F-ton or even the lesser used imperial F-ton?
0: I would say that probably what you have to do is start off by multiplying by an integer yet to be determined. It's always E. Multiply by E. (laughs) Okay, that'll work for me there you go
1: There's your conversion factors from metric buttload to the metric f tons and imperial f tons. Just remember stay safe and watch your buttloads
0: <laughs> 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 I'm not even gonna go there <laughs> having having just had a colonoscopy uh... uh
1: enough of that all right so let's get uh, let's get the show finished up uh something uh, with our something other and quick tip segments. A uh, quick tip is from the Idiot Files, a.k.a. me, and I'm just going to say, uh, word of caution, unless you're really, really sure about how tight all your connections are on your keg lines, you know, your cobra lines or whatever it is you're using to feed your taps, don't leave your keg lines on your keg when you go to sleep at night. You may wake up in the morning to find that you have beer in the bottom of your freezer and not in your glass, and that's like the saddest thing in the universe.
0: Well, what about people who have like kegerators and stuff and leave them hooked up all the
1: time? Well, I... I suspect keg raters are probably going to be less likely to have failure issues just because you're not always manipulating them. You know, like a permanent a permanent tap set, a setup for whatever reason. Like when I'm dealing with Cobra lines, they always seem to come as you're manipulating them, they come a little loose at the at the flare. Or you know, it, me sometimes I've done this where I'll go to clean the post and I'll take the whole thing apart and then don't tighten it all the way back down, or the washer gets pinched in one particular corner. I, I, nice I did delete. that once, man. Yeah, it's it's painful. So I'm just going to say you're not a full-service bar, so there, you have no reason to need to leave your kegs on tap the whole time. So don't do that unless you want to be like me and wake up to two gallons of beer in the bottom of your freezer and go, but I like that beer.
0: Nothing like experience to teach, huh?
1: Nope. And for something other than beer, it's podcast time. And I just ran across this one. It's a relatively new podcast from the World War II History Museum of New Orleans. Uh, it's called Service on Celluloid, and it's a series of podcasts where they do both long episodes and mini-episodes, and they look at films that cover World War II. So all sorts of things, you know, you, you name it. You know, films like 12 O'Clock High, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, they haven't gotten to the Dirty Dozen yet, but I have to imagine they will at some point. And I, I dove in just to listen to it because I like World War II history, and plus also I really like a lot of World War II movies. I decided I'd start with two of my favorite World War II movies that are probably about as opposite as you can get, even though they were basically released at the same time. And one of those is Patton, starring George C. Scott. And then the other one is my, probably one of my favorites, but never really gets talked about, Kelly's Heroes, starring Clint Eastwood.
0: And what a it was great just, movie.
1: Uh, well, it was, it was fun watching the uh, or listening to this podcast because they went through and like they were talking about... Okay, in Patton, you can see these historical inaccuracies because of the kinds of material they're using, the different tanks that they're using, and they kind of shuffled some of the stuff around, yada, yada, yada. But overall, great movie, and of course, everybody loves it because it's Patton. Now, I went and I listened to Kelly's Heroes because I was half expecting them to sort of rip it into you know tiny little pieces because it's really a heist movie in World War II. And nope, they loved it, and I'm thankful that they loved it because it's still one of my favorite movies. And I, I still quote it to this day whenever I look at people and go,
0: Always with the negative waves, Moriarty. <laughs> it, is a, it is a really, really entertaining movie.
1: Uh, and so that podcast, again, is called Service on Celluloid from the World War II History Museum. Go give it a listen.
0: Okay, time to wrap things up, huh? Absolutely. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. Drew tends to hang out on the uh, homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrew channel. You can find me on a number of different beer discussion forums, uh, mostly the AHA forum. And uh, if you ever want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can always leave us a voicemail or shoot us a text at 626-765-1AL. And don't forget, you can find us at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.